When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it felt right. I felt so And I just thought, well... I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clutter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and what do you say we ease into 2024 with a lighthearted show on life and death? I see all those hands. Okay, thrilled that you're on board. Let's go. First up is Shannon Turner. Shannon Turner is a professional storyteller and story coach. She's also a writer, dreamer, nerd, and the founder and creative director of Story Muse. If you've ever found yourself thinking, what am I doing with my life? Which, let's be honest, who hasn't? You'll love Shannon and her story. Here we go. Tonight we've been talking about stories of faith and some people put their their faith in science and some people put their faith in religion. Some people put their faith in Beyonce. That's why I'm wearing silver tonight because she said it was Virgo season and therefore we should wear silver. Um, some people put their, their faith in astrology. I certainly felt a little bit unlocked when I learned what it meant to be a Gemini rising, which meant that I am a little bit two-faced. It means that I live in the gray areas. It means that I see the good and the bad and the everything. We were a part of the Methodist complex growing up. Um, it was the family business. We moved around all the time. Every year, our contract was up. You could stay or go. It meant that we would say we want to stay or go. The church could say we want them to stay or go. But ultimately, the church superstructure would say stay or go. And like I said, I can see this, the good or the bad in everything. So the bad part of that is that I have a hard time trusting any situation. I have a hard time making solid relationships with people. But the good part of that is that I, as a Leo son, got to reinvent myself everywhere I went. Halfway through my junior year of high school, we found ourselves moving yet again, which was very hard because I was almost through high school. And it was doubly hard because we actually moved back to a place where we had lived before. So how was I to reinvent myself? I was reconnecting with people and meeting new people. And there was Beth one of the most ethereal creatures I'd ever known before. She was smart and she was so sweet and she was a dancer and she rode her bike 
Beth went to the church that we were now at, and we had this Bible study that we got to go to because I was at the big bougie church on Church Circle in Kingsport, Tennessee. And so I was so pleased to try to get to know Beth, but Beth was one of those people that I felt like I really couldn't connect with. I've spent my whole life trying to connect with these kind of people and feeling like they were, well, I was in Tennessee and they were on Mars. We were in one of those um, moments in Bible study where um, everyone was laying around. It was kind of that, that intimacy that only teenage girls can achieve. I'm sorry if you've never been, been a teenage girl, you don't know what this feels like. But we were laying around on our Jansport backpacks and Beth was asking me how I felt about the perm that I'd just gotten because it was the 90s. And I was saying it was the worst mistake I'd ever made because I was a teenage girl and lacked perspective. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. And um, it takes four products to take care of. And she ran her hair hand through my hair as far as she could because it was a perm. And she said, well, it looks beautiful and you are always beautiful and you're beautiful on the inside and the out. And oh, it just zinged me to the core. And it was the kind of thing that because I'm the kind of woman who tends to like men, I really wish that a guy would say to me, but <laughs> I so appreciated Beth in that way because I felt connected to her in a way that I'd never felt before. We graduated from high school and we went on to college. Beth came here to Atlanta to Agnes Scotta Women's College, which is where I really wanted to go. But because I was a part of the Methodist complex, I went to a small Methodist liberal arts school in Southwest Virginia. And we promptly lost touch with each other because it was before the days of Facebook or even email. We didn't get email until we were almost through college in the 90s. So one day, because even though there wasn't Facebook, there was still the Methodist mom mafia. <laughs> I came home and my mom said, I have something to tell you. Your friend Beth is quite sick. And this was shocking because Beth was so hale. She was so sporty. She and her mom and her sister were the kind of women who, when we would go on our Methodist mission trips, would come into the locker rooms when we were all hot and sweaty and would just strip off all of their clothes and walk straight into the showers, which is what you tend to do when you take a shower. But I <laughs> was so full of shame, I would try to still stay clothed going into the shower because I thought as a Christian woman, that's what you were supposed to do was to be full of shame and all, you know, to be in your body. And Beth had, at that point, ridden her bike across Europe and danced in Japan. I couldn't imagine how Beth could possibly be sick in such a way that my mom would take note of it. After we had graduated from college, she had gotten an internship here at the Yerkes Primate Research Institute. And um, she'd already co-authored papers that had words like 
nipple preferences in sexual primate, um, rhesus macaque. I don't know. I mean, these are like, <laughs> I wish that I had them written down on the back of my hand, but she was amazing. Dancer, scientist, athlete. One day when she was transferring a, a monkey cage from one place to another, some monkey fecal matter had flipped up into her eye. And it had created a very rare instance of herpes B virus transfer from animal to human. And monkeys pass this to each other all the time. But when it happens from animal to human, it creates a very drastic situation. And when it's caught quite early, it can be mostly intervened. But it's only happened in about 50 cases in the 20th and 21st century. So we all waited and watched over the course of about three weeks while paralysis slowly crept up her body all the way to her eyes. And it, for a moment, started to subside. And so we thought that she would beat it. But then, ultimately, she succumbed. This was a national tragedy. If you were watching, if you were here in Atlanta, this was on Dateline. Uh, it created quite a scandal. Uh, Beth's family actually created um, a foundation because she should have been wearing goggles when it happened. Um, so they created a foundation to um, to really support workplace safety and uh, scientific research. Meanwhile, I mentioned that I had gone to a liberal arts college and I had gotten an English degree and a women's uh, studies minor. Um, and I had fallen headlong into a wandering journey because I didn't want to go to grad school or become a teacher. And there were no options for me. I was actually just careening into one identity after another as my early life had sort of imprinted on me. I was rebelling against or trying to embrace identities. I had worked in a bar. I had substitute taught gotten fired from substitute teaching. <laughs> I had uh, lived at a camp. I had cleaned for some really nasty undergraduate boys. <laughs> and about six months after Beth passed away, one night I was cleaning a toilet in a bar that some sorority girl had thrown up in when some toilet water flipped into my eye. And all of a sudden, I had one of those moments. We've talked a bit about those this evening. Now, I talked about all of the things that we can keep our faith in. One of the things I have faith in is pop culture and my annual film schedule. <laughs> the never-ending story is one of those. 
There's this moment in the never-ending story where the whole world has been destroyed and two children are standing in front of each other and there's a small little light crystal in their hands and the world is about to be reborn again. And that is what an epiphany feels like to me. My whole world was distilled down to that moment in a tiny little light crystal and it felt like it was about to be reborn. When, when Beth died, she was living her purpose. Like I said, she had already ridden her bike across Europe and danced in Japan and published all these papers. And, and what if I had contracted some bizarre disease from scrubbing a toilet in a bar, and there is nothing wrong with cleaning as a profession. I've continued to do it to support myself as an artist, but I was furthering my life away with no sense of purpose. And who was I to do that? And so my life was reborn. Six months after that, I was in AmeriCorps which led to a career in the nonprofit industrial complex, <laughs> which led to grad school, which led to me becoming a storyteller and a story coach, helping people tell their stories and hear each other across lines of difference. Now, that sounds like a success story in the same way that a life like, like Beth's seems kind of perfect in a way. We have a tendency to tell stories in a way that have an arc. Like a life itself feels like a scientific experiment, right? We have a hypothesis, we go out and gather evidence, we come back and ex examine it. And a life that is very short feels perfect because we'll never know if Beth had a chance to question her research if she would have gotten married and divorced. And a life that is very long feels like a slog, like an experiment that doesn't work over and over and over again. <laughs> but now I have to get over my long-term feeling that I would die early. I'm faced with the knowledge that I might actually live a long life on the finances of being an artist. <laughs> and I can tell you that at the very least, I have ridden my bike across Ireland and tried to walk without shame through a Korean spa, naked, <laughs> and gone swing dancing through Atlanta. And at the very least, I am so grateful for the friends who light the way. Thanks, y'all.
was Shannon Turner. Head to storyclutter.org to learn more about her. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but if standing alone in the spotlight in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a story clutter donor might be more your speed. Story clutter donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please consider donating to the Story Clutter at storyclutter.org/donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Clutter. Our next story is from Erica Bust. Erica is a journalist and the author of the book, This Party's Dead. Erica's story is an amazing view into how different cultures deal with death. Spoiler alert, some cultures take selfies with their dead. You ready? Okay, let's head to London's Aces and Eights Saloon Bar and let's go for a ride with Erica. I'm snooping in a dead man's fridge. It's not an official post-mortem, but he's still upstairs in his bed and I need an answer now. I stare at the contents, trying to find the culprit for a stopped heart. I knew he was dead an hour before my partner Dion found him. It was all there in the text. The cleaner's at dad's and he's not answering the door or phone. Milk and paper haven't been collected and the dog is barking. He's probably just asleep or out, right? Suspicion that something's wrong, confirmation that something's wrong, denial that anything's wrong. It was practically a death certificate. We lived with Chris for two years before we found our own place. He once whispered to me conspiratorially that he'd had a lie-in until 6 a.m. <laughs> Anytime I got up after 8 a.m., he'd be like, half the day's gone. <laughs> of course, he wasn't asleep. It's been less than three hours since Dion found him. He arrived this morning at 9.30 a.m., opened the door and called, Dad. He went to the kitchen and saw the mess and the dog's ribs. He fed him twice, already knowing what he'd find upstairs. He opened the bedroom door and saw his dad in bed with a book on his chest and glasses on his head. He must have nodded off while reading, but that was eight days ago. And now we're downstairs and Dion will not let me see him, but in a moment of trauma, he describes it. Bloated and green, flies, the zombie dad, he says which makes it all the more awkward when the handle comes off the bedroom door and the wind blows the door shut and the undertakers are trapped in there with him. <laughs> also awkward, Victorian houses have no soundproofing whatsoever. So when the police come downstairs to say that nothing looks suspicious, but also <gasps> we mind awfully. They broke down the door to release the undertakers from their prison and the world's grossest cellmate. They can definitely hear us laughing and wherever you are, we are still so sorry. They break down the door. The smell fills the air. How can I describe it? The scientific words are putrescine and cadaverine. It smells like meat and fruit left for days in the sun. 
I remember the moment it lodges itself in the muscle of my brain. So much so that years later, when I visit a ham shop in Spain and I walk through the corridor strung with thousands of those great naked pig legs, the smell is so familiar that I almost faint. One day I walk past a house in Pimlico and know with absolute certainty that someone is dead in the basement. And I wonder what to do. I should say, it's not the worst smell in itself, but it dissolves the seams of your sanity because it's death, the one thing we're taught to look away from. It smells like staring at the sun. Months later, I'm at home on my laptop. I'm a contracted features writer for The Guardian and I look like I'm working fervently on a story. In reality, I'm on Facebook, stalking everyone I know, because how had I never noticed that anyone I'm not currently looking at might be dead? So I guess it falls to me to check on everyone. It falls to me to message them and look for the double blue tick that is, you know, evidence that they've read the message. And when they respond with a gesture of normal conversation, I go quiet because I'm already checking on the next person because I'm no longer a friend. I'm a head counter, a satellite botherer. I am also, if this is even an important detail, an agoraphobe? I mean, what does that even mean? Why is everyone so big on going outside every day? Like, who is outside's PR team? You know, it's not even that good. Like, you know when you go outside and the air goes all thick in your lungs? It's like breathing melted chocolate, am I right? <laughs> Guys? <laughs> Guys, am I right? Yes. No, I'm not. Of course I'm not right. I'm just an agoraphobe now, which does not mean that you're afraid of open spaces. It just means that you have a panic attack when you go into one. Here's the thing. You need a little bit of faith to go outside, and I don't have any. So like, you're all here tonight, despite the risk that you could be, you know, hit by a car, stabbed, swallowed by a sinkhole. That's the kind of faith that I just simply don't have anymore. So I decided to Google how to get over agoraphobia. And um, I'm sort of hoping that it will be like, yeah, you just need like some orange juice and an hour of Netflix. It doesn't say that. It says I have to go outside. How rude is that? Like genuinely so rude. That's like, like oh, you have a migraine? Go to a nightclub and stare at the pretty lights. It's like, <laughs> find a honking tuber and just make out with it. Um, so I get over how rude that is and eventually I think, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna buy a sandwich, right? That is it, should be fine. It's not fine. Uh, the panic just overwhelms me and it finally takes me down in the supermarket. I don't even buy the sandwich, I just throw it and I run home. And then I'm back at my kitchen table where the air is thin and breathable and I start thinking about Mexico. So I used to live in Mexico. I lived there for two years after uni. And so I saw a lot of um, Day of the Dead celebrations. And out of interest, I Google, I'm always Googling, um, death festivals around the world. And it turns out there's loads of them. And that sort of leaves me with a question, which is how come people all around the world are looking at death and throwing a party and I just throw in a sandwich? So my total inability to answer that question is what makes the next few years of my life so utterly bizarre. Because I decide that I have to not only beat agoraphobia, but I have to visit death festivals. Seven of them. One for every day we didn't find him. So 
that's what I do. So first I go back to Mexico to revisit Day of the Dead, which this is the one you've probably all heard of, right? So you probably know that people sit up by the gravesides for two days and they throw a huge celebration for their dead relative's return. So that's where I realize that when you have a death festival, you get to take care of the dead again. And until that moment, your love just sits there with nothing to do and it hurts. Then I go to Nepal, where they have a festival called Gaijatra. And in this, uh, essentially here, everyone who has lost someone that year parades through a street with a procession with music and dancing and chanting and comedy. And that's where I learn that grief's biggest <coughs> lie is that you are alone. And it's impossible to believe that when you're staring out at thousands of people who've been through the same thing. And then I go to Sicily, where on Day of the Dead, kids wake up to like a treasure hunt of gifts that's been left, not by Santa, but by their dead relatives. And that's where I learn that when you come from a culture that, you know, has death as a taboo, your dead loved ones get the stink of taboo all over them, and the air goes all weird when you mention their name. And then I go to Thailand, where people burn paper versions of money as a way to get them as a, it's basically a gift that they're sending to heaven. And lately it's been, you know, paper iPhones, paper mansions, paper clawfoot baths. Um, and that's where I realised that you never get to buy the dead a gift again. Unless you just do it anyway. Why not just do it anyway? Then I go to Japan. And much like Mexico, the spirits come back to visit, but they're there for a whole week. And then they have a goodbye ritual at the end. And Kyoto is surrounded by mountains on which there are these enormous bonfires uh, in the shape of Chinese characters. The idea being that the spirits kind of hitch a ride back to heaven on the bonfire smoke. And that's where I realized that grief doesn't heal like a cut. It's not a little better every day. So there is nothing wrong with you if you burst into tears a year or five years later. And it is actually healthy to say goodbye again, and again, and again. Then I go to Madagascar, and that is where an eight-day-old corpse becomes amateur hour, because at the turning of the bones, they actually take the bodies out of the tombs and wrap them in a fresh shroud, and then dance around and have a massive party with them. So I'm standing on a concrete tomb. I'm being jostled from all sides by drunk, dancing men. There's a crowd of thousands of people, and the air is full of music from a brass band, and shouting, and singing, and dust. And the dust is billowing from down below us, where men are digging into the ground and pulling back a concrete slab. And then they start to take bodies out, and they're passing them up to their descendants, shouting out the names on the sides that have been written there years ago. And then my guide says, he hears a name and he says, that's Lala's grandfather, let's go. So we go to the rickety wooden ladder and we climb down and we're jogging through the crowd with like, follow that car kind of energy. And it takes us a few minutes to find the right corpse, um, which is not a sentence I ever expected to say. And the family are there, rewrapping them, fresh, fresh shroud, fresh tears. And they ask to borrow my pen so they can write his name, so they can recognize him in seven years. And then all around me, corpses start rising up onto the shoulders of their descendants and everyone starts to dance and whoop and cheer and then I feel a thonk. It's like a thonk at the back of my head. It's a freshly wrapped corpse. So like I guess the balance was off. I turn around and they're like, oh, sorry. I'm like, it's fine. It happens. And I, 
there thinking, I, I started this whole journey by having a breakdown because of my terror of death and the corpse. And now I've just been hit in the head by one and it's funny. <laughs> Madagascar is where I realized that our culture has decided that when you die, you lose all your power. And that is not the case everywhere. If you want to pray for health and wealth in the highlands of Madagascar, you're not praying to God, you're praying to your ancestors so they can like put in a good word for you. So you better keep them sweet and just like that, the corpse starts to shed the disgust that we assume is natural and it becomes someone who gets invited to the party. I did not take on this journey to heal myself. So the book I wrote, This Party's Dead, I wasn't going for eat, pray, love with corpses. Like I wasn't trying to be like, the real death festival is the friends we made along the way. That's not what I was going for. But, yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, no, but also, yeah, like, getting hit in the head by a corpse changed me. Are you sick of people telling you that? It did. And it just made me realise that that kind of disgust we have around the corpse, it, it is cultural, and it's not a lesson that you have to carry, and it's not one I'm going to carry anymore. And the last festival I went to was in Tana Taraja in Indonesia, where they take the corpses out of the crypt and dress them in new clothes and people run up to them and shove phones in their dry embalmed faces for photos and selfies and FaceTime calls from like family members who couldn't make it. I can see the little screen. I can see someone going, oh my God, hi grandma. And you know, by this point, I've been on this journey for years and I think I'm past the idea that a corpse is a frightening thing. But then I see one more thing that changes me. Um, it's a girl and she sat next to her grandmother who has been dead for four years. And then just sort of sat in companionable silence, looking out at the mountainous view. And then she notices a little bit of dust in her grandmother's hair, and she just brushes it away. Just such a sweet, casual, loving gesture to a corpse. And I realize like, oh, I forgot about the love. Like if grief is love with nowhere to go, then why not just give it somewhere to go. That's why some people throw a party and I throw a sandwich. People who throw a death festival just giving the love somewhere to go. So, yeah, a couple of years ago, I got hit in the head by a corpse and it woke me up. Thank you. <laughs> That was Erica Beast. Told you that was going to be a ride. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Clutter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclutter.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to attend a live show, learn how to tell a science story, or start your own Story Clutter show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Mesa Salida, Emma Yarbrough, Michaela Agapiu, and Richard Kemeny. 
Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brentson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost. And next week, I'll be back with some wild stories about hallucinogens. Oh yeah, we're going on a trip. And I can't wait for you guys to come along. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.